for the purposes of the recording. We're at Samish Island in April 2018. Pascal and Heather are here, and so are all of you. Mm. So I've got three pieces to this evening's talk I want to talk about. One, um, I want to talk about why on earth we would meditate anyway. Like, what is it about this mind, you know, and why we need to train it? More so for the people who um, are newer to this, but we all need to remember. Then secondly, I'm going to just give us some overview of some of the structure of what we do. Again, for some people who really want to have at least a bit of the context of... I like the word structure. I think of my body as having a skeleton. And then there's all the subtleties that hangs on top of it, but there's something underneath it that holds it together. So I just wanted to name some of those pieces just to give us a context for those who would like that. But then I want to talk about, um, in that, the skill building, the art of meditation, focusing particularly on what we're coming to in this particular retreat which is the, yes, the skill of staying, of settling, of calming, of collecting, of concentrating. So that's, I don't know if you can put that in one title, but anyway, that's the title. <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Meditating, I've said already twice on this retreat, meditation stand in the middle, being in the center of our life rather than peripheral or under it or detached from it or somewhere off, you know, off it. Being fully in it, really, meditation. Training ourselves to be more and more fully here. And it's a training, it's a mind training. We use meditation to train our minds to be more here. The more here we are, the less we need to train to be here. But for most of us, we use it as a training. And then mindfulness, these two key words, mindfulness, is one of eight trainings that we do, not just to be fully here, but to be fully as here and as clear and as free from all neurosis, anxiety, confusion, inappropriateness as it's possible to be. Mindfulness is one of eight practices or steps often, steps on an eightfold path, not that the path is leading anywhere except into freedom, away from confusion. So it's one of the skills and it's one of three meditation trainings. So it's just one of three, it isn't the be all and end all, but it's the crucial mindfulness, effort and concentration, the three, mind, the three meditation trainings on this, these eight things we develop. Context. So why do we want to train the mind? What is it? What is this mind that needs training? So I just, I began writing and then more and more, and more things came. It's like, of course we would want to train the mind because these are some of the things the mind untrained does. We all have them. This is the, the shared condition of being human, this soup that we're in. And these aren't really well organized in any particular order. And these aren't necessarily statements of fact. They're invitations to see if this isn't true for you and how does this show up for you. 
the mind, our minds, will think anything. <laughs> what then? Anything at all, especially when you think no one's listening. <laughs> no shame, no restraint, anything. Unbelievable things. And often, really, we don't want to be thinking those things, but it'll do it. doesn't just think things, anything. It believes them when it thinks them. Yeah? It's convincing those things it thinks. Not all of the time. Sometimes we know it's ludicrous. We know this completely off the wall. But the majority of the time, what we think, we're telling ourselves is how it is, right? It's a believable machine. Yeah? It doesn't just believe them, it, it absolutely thinks it's right. <laughs> it's, um, I often have called it, it's too big for its boots, you know, but sort of like, I really do know, I, what I'm thinking is how it really is, it's so convincing. M more powerful than believable, it's really convincing. And that is very, that can really be so gripping, so oppressive, yeah? If, anybody, if I say anything that isn't true for anybody, I want you to put your hand up, okay? <laughs> um, these, these, um, these thoughts we have, in, often they're thoughts, often they're assumptions. It rapidly makes assumptions, this mind. But it does it, when I said rapidly, it's so quick, it does it so quickly. But often, often, it does it without enough information. Is this not right? It leaps to conclusions. Is this, isn't this true? And it's later on we realize, oh, I didn't realize, I didn't hear that part, I didn't, you know, never thought of that bit. So it's very quick and it's, it's rushing into its, you know, ideas, its assumptions, its statements of fact. It therefore makes lots of mistakes in how it's thinking. Classic example when um, Pascal was talking about being on that three-month retreat, and for two months of it, however long it was, his mind is telling him that no one likes him, you know, and that they're all being hostile. It's classic. I mean, it doesn't just leap to it hurriedly, then it continues doing it, in that case, for two months. Sometimes a lifetime. I am such and such. That person is such and such. we don't just leap to conclusions, we put meanings in things which we shouldn't, which don't mean anything, like that example. We missee all kinds of things. We, we misread people, we misread situations. This mind is what, it, it does that. It takes a little bit of feedback and then it runs with a whole other story, makes up a whole drama, it makes whole movies. Yeah? No hands are going up. <laughs> it keeps on chattering away making comments anybody's mind stopped making comments today yet <laughs> it's got something to say about everything you know, just describe sometimes it's just simply innocently describing things but it's often got to add a comment to that busy little thing 
often that's quite useless. It's pointless. We're like, why is it doing it? Just why doesn't it just shush for a while? Oh, I've got something to say about something. It's a weird little thing, this little mind in here. Busy little thing. It worries. You don't want it to worry oftentimes, especially in the night, you know, when you're tired and it just worries and worries. It can be worse than worrying, it can be scared, it can scare you to death. You can come up with all kinds of awful scenarios. And what is it, um, Mark Twain? Some of the worst things that, you know, in my life never actually happened. <laughs> Something like that. It gets carried away with drama, doesn't it? It starts telling something, not all the time, obviously some of them are silly little meaningless commentary, but sometimes it can make very big dramas and it can get really caught up in those dramas. Big scenarios, big, and maybe there are things that happen and then it goes over and over and reruns it and makes it big, we know that. It likes drama, this little mind, it gets really in there. It's like a terrier, it gets its teeth into something juicy and rah, rah, rah. No hands are going up. It exaggerates like crazy. <laughs> mm. It has this way of retelling a story so many times that you can't tell if it actually happened or how much of it actually happened because you've now told it so many times that you're, you're sure that you believe your own story. And I believe my own stories. Especially if you tell stories, if you're a storyteller, they get very real. Of course we know it wants things. It wants, it's, it's hungry for experience, right? It's chasing like a little, I don't know, puppy chasing after this, chasing after neat things, something to entertain itself, something to get its, you know, plan and design. I find that in retreat. I like designing things. My mind has to go off and do some designing. What can it re, it's gonna change all the irises into different colors or something. So it's got to do something, right? It just wants, application for itself, a job, something to fiddle with. Yeah. It doesn't know it wants to sometimes, it just finds itself doing it. I go, oh, that would be fun. Creativity. Sometimes we call it creativity, but other times it's just like, it's just hunger for stimulus, you know, something. It also, as we know, it wants to know. It gets really busy trying to figure things out. Because it really believes in knowing something, knowing whatever that means. It thinks that's really important. And somehow it'll sort its life out or make everything okay somehow or, you know, rearrange things. It fiddles with things. Fiddles and faffs and messes around with stuff. Huh? It'll suddenly come up with something out of the blue, it seems. It's amazing. It'll just suddenly, poof, create a whole something or other. You're going along, minding your own business, breathing in and out, walking calmly along, and then some, it's ex extraordinary like that. And you don't know, sometimes we can tell a certain something will trigger something in a memory and then up will come a whole movie, but often we can't catch that. Suddenly there's like, it's, it's extraordinary. Powerful sometimes. 
It loves the sound of its own voice. It believes things are the way it wants to believe them. In other words, if it's in a good mood, it'll find beautiful things, where they're not really beautiful. If it's in a bad mood, it'll find ugly things or horrible things, where they're not particularly horrible. The mind is affected by the state, the inner organic state. And if that organic state is one of well-being, then, the, then that affects the lens of the mind. And it's, it starts to see affected by its mood. So if we're in, a, if we're in love, the world is beautiful. You know, if, we're, if we've been hurt recently, then the world sucks. You know, it's, like, it's the same old thing, but the mind is it's completely affected by whatever the, you know, the organic state is going on inside. You see that. It's very, very changing. It isn't, it's also, as Pascal was describing his mind, and he'd been watching his mind, just so, so unstable, so fleeting, so changeable. So quick to poof, poof, what's real is real is in one second and is absolutely not in another. But it also is distorted easily, affected so easily. When is it completely unaffected? Is it unaffected ever? You know, is it simply that the, these are the coming together of reasonably nice conditions so I'm reasonably clear in what I'm seeing? We don't really know, we can't tell that. And it certainly does a lot of believing certain things are important and other things are not important, and it gets that wrong a lot of the time. You know, it gets, really has judgments which it holds really dear, as though they're really important judgments. It reminds me of that little conversation that um, Eckhart Tolle writes about in his Be, Be Here Now book. I think that's his book. Um, no, that was Ram Dass, but anyway, it's Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, that book. <laughs> Where um, somebody, I've quoted this before because it somehow just sticks in my memory. A woman came to him with, a, you know, a student of his with a lot of troubles, whatever her troubles, something about her brother, I seem to remember, and renting somewhere. And she asked, can she come and talk to him? And she's got all these troubles. And she comes and she unburdens all these troubles. And he describes this from his point of view, not her point of view. And he says, I sat there, and she had all this stuff to say, so I just sat there, because she had all these things. But he wasn't at all involved or interested in the things. He was just being there, and she was talking. And she went on and on about it. And, then, uh, and he was like, so after about 20 minutes, she stopped. And then she said to me, um, it's not that important, is it? <laughs> and I said, no, not really. Because he wasn't particularly interested in the first place. He was being there for her, but he wasn't the contact, content didn't affect him at all. And so finally she says, and then he says, no, not really. And then she says, thank you so much. That's so helpful. You've really given me great perspective. <laughs> Which he had because he hadn't been in her drama. So he had helped her. But he, he, he's writing it. He's like, all I did was just sit there. You know, The mind gets all caught like that. Caught on and on. And you know how busy the mind is trying to predict, running around, trying to make things knowable, predictable, organized, you know, well-planned, so it will be secure, so tomorrow will work a certain way, and so on. I mean, it's really, really, it's anxious. It's trying to make sure we're safe, you know, and we, we're together about it all. Right? It really, really does that a lot, doesn't it? It's 
busy doing, taking care of us. It also makes most of this stuff up. <laughs> it's called fabrication. The stories about yourself, the opinions about people, the, the predictions about the future, even the stories from the past, it starts to, they get to be exaggerated and made up. The exaggerations, that everything's made up. It's busy doing all this stuff, making all these comments, reaching all these conclusions, leaping to inappropriate conclusions, holding judgments, and it's making it up. And it's making it up on a, in a flash, and then it's over, and then it's gone again. Do you think these are some of the reasons why we ought to train it? <laughs> it's not that reliable a thing. It's an amazing thing, but untrained, it's like giving the car keys to the kids, you know, kind of. You know, it's just not that reliable. It's so affected by so many things. It's so willy-nilly. It's so all over the place. It's so conditioned. It's so changing. And yet, it's unbelievably brilliant. It's, I mean, it, initially, it's trying to help us. I mean, it's meaning well in all of these efforts. So it's on our side, it's not, you know, this wild thing that we want to just have lobotomized or anything. But it's untrained, it's very unruly and very unpredictable and very distorted. Very unreliable. So we train it so we can use it. So it can actually be helpful, so it can be encouraging, so it can remind us of how to shift if we're caught in something inappropriate. It can be an unbelievably, and is, it's the most unbelievable instrument that we have as a human. When it's behaving itself, when we're utilizing it well, when we're taking advantage of it, when it's taking advantage of us, it's downright dangerous. It's not just unreliable, it's what causes all the pains in the, all the wars, all the divisions, all the wrong beliefs that treat everybody badly, all of the isms, it all comes from an untrained mind. Look at the state of our world. So it's, it's we have to train it. <laughs> we have to, have to have some handle on this amazing thing and use it well, not be used by it badly. So I just want to encourage us why we're doing this here, and there's very good reasons to do what we're doing. Don't lose touch of why. We, it's really useful to not think of this mind in here as your own. It's a conditioned function, just like your heart's a function and balance is a function and so on and so forth. It's, but we identify with it so much. And when it's running amok, you know, we feel so awful and we blame ourselves. And when it's doing well, we're proud of ourselves for being so charitable or patient or whatever it was, smart, coming up with the right thing. It's, it's a misappropriation of public property, somebody has said. Our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our energy, you know, it's public property. We can contribute to this and we can utilize it and we can train it and we can be helpful with these, some of these faculties of ours, but we identify inappropriately, and that gives us its own, you know, misery. 
So we're going to make these minds more useful, more skillful, more clear, more malleable. And they will then really help us express ourselves in the best way we can. Our good intentions, our caring, our tenderness can all manifest well. And that's what gets inhibited when the mind isn't behaving itself properly and it cuts it off and it undermines it and helps us to forget what we really want to remember and so on. So, okay, so I hope I've convinced you. You can remember this. Is it just, and you all have your own reasons why you're here. Those are my other ones. Okay, so part two. <laughs> I want to just give a bit of a, a bit of a synopsis about what we do here, some structure to this. So first of all, and in no particular order, but I've written it this way. So we have the, you know, one of the structures that we do is we sit and we walk, sitting meditation, walking meditation. Part of the structure of the sitting meditation, the actual, is we are aware of our body's experience, our present body's experience. I know this is elementary for some of you, but I'm wanting to put it in a context. We anchor our knowing in our immediate experience, which is in the body. That's like the, the, the sort of first thing. We are growing mindfulness by applying our attention to our immediate experience in our bodies as we sit. Mindfulness grows. Mindfulness, I gave the definition already, it's the being present knowingly. It's like knowing what's happening when it's happening. So it's that, I've often called it, since I met Utejaniya, two minds. It's the mind that knows what the mind is doing. It's one of the rare, rare extraordinary things about being human. The mind can see the mind. We can know ourselves. You know, that two-mind, that two-layered thing. Observe what's happening. And that grows by meditating. When we're sitting, we're aware of our posture, our breath, whatever sensations there may be, we've given a few of these, these are called anchors, one of the names for them, to anchor the attention to some part of our experience. As we do that, mindfulness can grow. We're also not just noticing breathing or hands or hearing or different sensations in the body, knowing that we're doing that. What happens, and we don't even sometimes mean to, this starts happening, this is how the practice does it. We do the practice and the practice reveals to us the state of our mind, the state of our heart, the state of our energy, how we're responding to things. All kinds of inner behaviors show up. We're simply doing simple, the meditation sounds so simple. Pay attention to your breathing, knowingly. And then we start seeing, oh, I don't do that. I, I'm bored. I'm complaining. I'm whining. Oh, look how my mind is. We start seeing so much. We don't teach you what to see because what you see, you'll all see your own in your own time. Can't teach that. We can teach you the method and then you'll see all the different things that will reveal themselves to you because of the method. The methods, because we have lots of them in Vipassana. When we're walking, the um, first, when we sit, we're sitting here, we're sitting in a meditation hall. 
in different ways of postures. Some people will teach different forms of posture. Some people can ask. If you're new at meditation and you want some help with your posture, ask us because we can maybe make some suggestions. When we're walking, in this tradition, what we what we're doing is using the walking as the focus, the movements of the body as the focus, instead of the sitting, breathing, or tingling hands or whatever as the focus, as the anchor. It's the, it's the whatever aspects of the walking that we're noticing, the body. But we also have these other senses that we've been t- talking to you about, being able to see, hear, feel the, the air, you know, feel the different air. When you go out the door, it's a very different air than when you're inside this air. So we're using the physical senses to anchor ourselves into the present moment so we can grow mindfulness, so we can know what's going on. Noticing our, our steps, growing mindfulness, and then noticing our attitude inside and our mind states and our heart states, etc. The same thing is in the sitting. As we keep practicing, what we'll be suggesting more tomorrow is instead of just wandering any old where, We'll start just, now you kind of know your way around here, especially those who are new to the place. We'll, we'll let, it's not, we're not walking to go anywhere and to check anything out, we're just walking to be in the body moving so it doesn't have to get too stiff sitting. And so we just walk backwards and forwards somewhere, somewhere relatively nearby. So we can pay attention to the movements of the body that are more big movements compared to the subtle intercostal ribs movements, which are much more less when we're sitting, but it's the same, it's body movements. I mentioned already one way of seeing the structure of this practice is three modes of practice, three kinds of meditations. There are several kinds of meditation, but we emphasize three in this tradition. One is kindness, friendliness, well-wishing, metta in a formal way, or simply gratitude or appreciation or kindness, telling yourself reassurance. There's many different aspects to that, and it's an art in itself. All of this is an art, of course. But it's one mode of the one of cheering, soothing, encouraging, cur, the heart, heartening, inspiring, making ourselves uh, feel held and befriended as we do it. This, this is the whole, it's an attitude, but it is an actual practice. So we want to employ some of the things I've said in whatever way you do, to whatever extent you want to, to bring a sense of well-being, safety, that you're here being your own friend. You're not here to fix that awful self, you know, trying to beat yourself into shape, or because someone says you should, or because your life is such a mess that you've got to do something desperate. It's got to be this friendly, sweet, which is what we both speak to a lot. That's one mode. Sometimes there are retreats just on that one mode with all kinds of ways of doing that. The second mode, and these aren't too distinct, they're all going along together in a way, but we can emphasize them, is what I'm wanting to emphasize, and I'll continue more with later is gathering and collecting the scattered attention and resting, calming down. It's serenity practice, samadhi practice, settling practice. And we need that. That's a, these are all essential pieces so that this fracture, jumpy scatteredness can begin to pull itself together and become unified 
calm, relaxed, steady, ah, grounded, centered, sane, mature, compared to a puppy. So that, number three, Vipassana, we are able to actually really observe the inner process, really get close to what's happening, and get more and more familiar with how we think the thoughts we do, why we worry about what we worry about, how we get carried away, all those things I was telling you about, the neurotic mind. You want to watch it do it, and see what it's doing, and see that it isn't helping, and see that it's futile, and see that it's getting carried away with itself, and when, and see if we can untangle that, and reassure that, and so on. So we have to be able to watch it. And to be able to watch it, we have to have a steadiness of the looker. If it's just a quick little gap of this, and a glance of that, and a a moment of this, we won't see clearly. We need a steadiness to see. So we need the steadying, the calming, the slowing. Then we start being able to observe, not just incidents and moments, and we start seeing patterns, and we start making sense of how this happens, how it all works, what's the mechanism going on. Insight, Vipassana. And there are other modes of meditation also, of which we do some, like you're doing a form of meditation now, you're not off randomly, hopefully, you're paying attention to me, (laughs) you're not off doing some other, like designing your new kitchen or shopping in Paris, whatever it is you do. You're actually, there's a contemplativeness, there's a contemplation, contemplating some of the things I'm saying. It's a, it's, a, it's a focused or directed kind of thinking. That's all meditation. Not meditation is when the mind's running amok and it's not, you know, you're not mastering anything. Contemplation, um, uh, visualization is also meditative. Inquiry can be quite meditative. I have a, a, my daughter is running in the Boston Marathon tomorrow. Um, and that's quite meditative for her, her running. It's a, it's a meditative experience. She isn't just like half there and half, you know, off spaced out. She is very focusing for her, gathering and collecting and soothing for her. So um, some kinds of imagining, using our imagination. When we're using it with intention, with full attention, then it can be meditative. We can be lost in our imagination. It can be running us, but we can also be utilizing imaginary imaginary skills, part of visualization, for instance. That's all I think of as meditating, meditative. It's mastery of the mind rather than the other. So those are the modes. And then here are some of the skills and the tools. So firstly, I've put attitude. And we've already talked, and for the last couple of days, we've been really emphasizing the attitudes to bring. Because there's attitudes to meditation, not just a f- you're not just doing the task, you're doing it with certain ways, kindness, curiosity, gentleness, receptivity, lightness, exploratory, that's, what, that's all that Pascal was talking about last night, all these beautiful attitudes he's describing. Wonder, experimentation, Scientists, like, what is this? What is this? That exp- is it all the attitude that we bring to being with your breath, being with your sore knee, 
you know, being with that your mind is, is worried. We're bringing an attitude of curiosity, of wonder, you know, exploration. We also, there's an attitude, a certain attitude of restraint that we bring. Just this. I'm not going to just like let my mind say, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm going to say, no, I'm not, not going to do that. I am going to stay and be bothered. There's a certain holding and restraining that's required. It's got to be light. Another attitude is really, really light and gentle. Because as soon as we get heavy-handed about any of it, it gets to be a drag. It gets to be like uh, a slog. And we won't maintain it. It's hard enough to do when we're doing it with great skill and it's an art and it's growing well. It's still hard to do in our busy, worldly world. But when we're doing it un unskillfully, it's like, oh my God, it's exhausting. And it's like somebody, I remember reading this somewhere, I don't know who said this, it's like we're trying to see this mind and understand this mind with an untrained mind. It's like trying to serve with boxing gloves. <laughs> it's a clumsy thing that we're trying to look at itself with. So how could, you know, so it's hard to do initially. So we have to patiently keep looking, keep looking, and it's like the boxing gloves get thinner and thinner. And we're able to feel and see and perceive what we're doing more and more clearly till it gets more and more delicate. And it just requires patience. But it's, it's, it's hard to do with a sketchy, triggered, wounded, frightened, anxious, needy mind to see itself, you know, it's like, whoa! It's, it's you know, that's why it's, we have to practice that. It sounds so simple, but boy, we know it's not. And another attitude I want to mention, even though Pascal's talked a lot about these beautifully, so beautifully, it, he mentioned this, I loved his story about the horse, the encounter with the horses. The, the piece that, um, for me, is in that is the wholeheartedness of that encounter, to really give ourselves fully to whatever it is that we're doing. And that's an attitude, and it's also a skill. It isn't so easy when it seems so subtle. If it's something really juicy, we can really give our attention fully to something. But when it's the breath or the sore knee, how do I give, how do I do that? So. This merges now into the next list of things I've got, which are the skills of meditation. And it, it isn't just that we do it as a, as a task, we do these things, but there are all these skills that come along with it, which get increasingly refined. And some of you have a lot of these skills, and some of you are really growing these skills, and some of you, you, you don't have these skills yet. You would never even have thought of these. So I'm going to describe some of them. Because they're just really, that what makes it come alive, meditation, sitting, being present, is um, this turns it into this graceful art. And it's an art, and it's individual, and it's going to keep changing, depending on all the changing things going on inside you at any one time. So here are a bunch of these skills. Not in any order of preference. So this skill to be able to relax. not so easy. Especially a lot of us are strivers. Any strivers in the group? <laughs> and so like the idea of relaxing is just like we think that that's, you know, cheating somehow maybe. So how do we, that in itself is, is a great skill to keep learning in meditation. How to be relaxed and alert. Present and interested in a relaxed way. It's a refining, endlessly refining skill. 
but we need a lot of relaxation. I t said last night, the effort required is enough, according to Ajahn Chah, to read a book. That's a fairly relaxed approach to what you're observing. But of course, too relaxed, you're gone. You know, back there, the mind's like running its mark, and off it is when it's commentary. So, to to that's an endlessly adjusting. How much is enough relaxed and too much? And keeps changing. That's one. Um, the one which I've already mentioned in talking about the modes of practice, but this skill about encouraging and kindness, and you know, the the we use the word wholesome, meet friendly approach, like the skill of friendliness, of keep befriending, especially if you keep judging yourself, or you keep giving up on yourself, you know, you keep just becoming frustrated, to be able to keep accessing, it's okay, you're doing fine, you know, as a resource, if you like, as a skill, it's a skill. And for some of us, it's harder than others, you know, and depending on how many years you've spent judging, you, know, <laughs> you have to, this is an alternative approach, you know, so... Okay, can I make this really accessible to myself? Encouragement and reassurance, and cheerfulness. And there's another skill that's really close into this skill, which is, um, and I took a long time with this skill, and now I have it, it's fantastic. It's the skill of cheering yourself up, of gladdening. Because I was so strivey and so serious and so grim and so good and worked so hard and got so tight and got so frustrated, <laughs> meant so well, and, uh, and I didn't know that actually cheering myself up was going to save a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time and a lot of struggle, and because if we cheered up, it's like, it's beautiful, it's okay, life is hard, and it's sweet to be able to handle even the hard things, I can, the optimism that can come, and it's, a, it's a, how, do you, how do you find uplift? How do you find how to cheer yourself? The Buddha has a whole lot of, lot of ways to gladden the heart. To take refuge is one of his. To concentrate on your virtue. Is that a ready resource? Are we really skilled at paying attention to our virtue? We're really skilled at blaming ourselves. We're not so skilled at actually appreciating our goodness, our virtue our kindness, our good qualities. But we need that as a skill, because when we're down on ourselves, which is much easier to be in that state, we need to be able to counter that state with this other skill. It's a skill. Gladden, uplift, cheer ourselves. Be of good cheer, some wise person said once, apparently. <laughs> and then there's this one of resting and calming, which... You better talk fast so I can get back to the resting part. This gathering, I'm going, to, I'm going to go a little bit further into that one. I'm going to skip over it for now. And then there's a whole lot of skills of balancing. Already I talked about relaxed and alert, that balance. To balance our interest with our receptivity. If we have too much interest, we start going towards and digging into. And if we have a lot of receptivity without enough interest, it gets very vague and drifty. So that's a balancing. For yourself, you'll find times and ways for these things to come. To, um, some, and along with that, sometimes we approach our, our experience, if it's our breath, let's say, use that. We can actually go a step closer to the breath. What else is here with the breath? 
what else? Getting closer. And sometimes we get, that makes us get a little tight, so we need to back up away from it, move, remove ourselves back up onto the observation tower as that bigger, broad perspective that the, the Buddha had. Sometimes that, for me, is like narrowing my lens of my attention to something smaller and sometimes widening it out bigger. Zooming in and zooming out, I've called it that. And when to zoom in and when to zoom out. And there's no right or wrong, of course, but when is it useful to get a little closer to something? And when is it useful to back off? And there isn't an answer. There is a time. It's just sometimes we try by zooming in, sometimes we try by zooming out. These are skills, and they come by practicing them. You practice zooming in sometimes, and zooming out sometimes, and getting close to something, and, and you see what happens. And you might find if you stay too close to something for too long, you're going to start getting busy and tight, and, and then strivy, and then judgy, and then frustrated. Oh, that wasn't a good idea. I went too far that way. Okay. So we learn by these adjustments. Another skill is um, waiting and seeing. I love this one. We're with the present experience. This is part of the one I'm you know, concentrating. Can I be with my experience and just wait and see what happens? We're often ahead of ourselves. We're looking for something. We're trying to make something happen, get something. Can I wait and see what shows up patiently? If it isn't instantaneous, am I going to get bored and go off and have to distract myself? Can I keep staying here? That's a skill, that ability. It's another skill to... Um, this is a lovely skill. Love this way this is described. Um, Pascal used the word embrace. I've been thinking about that. We don't, I don't use that word embrace that much. The word I've been using recently, which is the same thing, is hold. And it's, it's of course, it's the same word. So when I think of hold, there's a teaching that um, Arjun Suchito describes in this. And he talks actually about, he's, what he's really talking about is what I've been fascinated by for the last several years, which is the different um, hemispheres of the brain and how they function, and how they function in meditation. And the left hemisphere, the commentator, the linear thinking, the organizing, the... the um, naming and organizing things. He calls this the fingers, manas, of a hand. And the chitta, the heart-mind, the right hemisphere, the receptive, the waiting and seeing, the quiet, as the palm of the hand. We're very good in our normal life at fingers. We can go and get and manipulate and rearrange and explain and list and organize and predict and, you know, it, all of that R really, really well. In fact, the better we do it, the more money we earn and everything. I mean, it's really honored. The, the other, the palm, the receptive, we're not so good at. We get something and then we've got it. Now we're on to the next thing we want to get, for instance. We get something and we have to explain it. No. We have something that's difficult and we have to figure out what it is so we can rearrange it. We're manipulative like that. We do that a lot. But we don't just receive something and let it be here and get to know it by just waiting with it, holding it. We want both these functions, but we have the finger function really 
developed and we don't have the holding, the being able to just let it be here, whatever it is, this sore knee. You're like, what is this knee? Anyway, why have I done it? What did I do? What will I do next? If I do this, maybe this, we get busy with it. Instead of just like, this is like this right now. Holding. It's receiving, not just receiving and then what? It's receiving and then keeping it here and being with this. Staying, hanging out with this. Holding. It's a skill. It's a skill. It's, we have to practice these. All skills you have to practice to be able to have them become skills, right? And then there's shifting. We shift. We shift from one practice to another. When do we shift from metta to concentration? And when do we shift from concentration to vipassana? And how do we do that? There's this, I'm going to actually be a little friendlier. When there's this moving between these various skills. That in itself is a skill. When and how. I think I'll try this one now. I'm going to back off a little bit now. I'm going to give some, some kindness to myself. I want to cheer myself now. We don't want to be busy all the time. These aren't meant to be a whole list of to-dos, but they are ways that our, my, our practice becomes refined. Gets, and with, with more skill, as these all grow, these skills, they do it. Like they know when to step up and do it. We know when we're going to go towards something and we're going to back off from something, when we're going to reassure ourselves. We start being able to trust the process by itself. And then another skill, and, um, and we haven't talked about this one on this retreat, and I like this, I like this is the way I think of it is, there are a whole lot of lenses that the Buddha described that we can see our experience through. We can see our experience in terms of this, in terms of this, in terms of this. The dharmas, the way things can be really clearly seen. We tend to see our experience in terms of me and my wants and my worries and my neurotic, busy little mind. But I can actually pick up the lens of the hindrances and I can say, what's going on here in the terms of hindrances? Oh, there's wanting here, there's agitation here, and there's tons of doubt. Oh, that's interesting. And we can put that one down and we can pick up and say, what's happening here in terms of the awakening factors? So those of us who know some of these lists and get to know what those teachings are and how, how to see with those, we can see with those. And then it's a skill to decide, I'm going to pick up this one and see with this one now. And again, these aren't skills that are right or wrong. They're just ways of applying our present awareness through these different lenses. And I'm, I'm cautious here that I don't want you to feel like, oh my God, I'm never going to get all these skills together and sort of give you a whole long list of things to practice. One of the tricks, the tricky things for us in teaching is here you all are. Some of you are brand new meditators and some of you have been at it for 40 years. So all of these things apply sooner or later. And so don't ever be intimidated by these things we say. If something resonates with you, is interesting to you, Check it out. If it goes over your head, let it go over your head. You don't have to. This isn't everything for everyone, ever. Remember, I always say the smorgasbord? So here are a bunch of dishes. You don't have to eat every dish at the smorgasbord. You'd be sick. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's the skill which we speak to all the time. 
um, which is the shifting from the way we normally see things in terms of the dualistic, this is me and this is it, subject and object, ways of doing things. We start being able, using those, those, those lists, those lenses, and sometimes we don't even realize we're using those lenses, and we start seeing things in terms of, of um, the big truths that they are. Pascal was talking right away when he was talking last night about his practice of seeing the ephemeral nature of his mind and how what apparently was solid wasn't at all and was shifting and changing. <coughs> one, of those, one of those lenses is the three characteristics. And one of those characteristics is things are always changing. When we start having the skill to be able to remember, this isn't about me, this isn't personal, this is a mind. This is a mind that's conditioned, that's going to worry sometimes, that's going to get lost in thought sometimes, that's going to be kind sometimes, that's going to remember to relax sometimes. It's not me. I'm just training this faculty here to be more skillful and ease in my life. So that's a shift. And that's a skill. And so the more we, we develop these skills, the more they're available to us. It's like resources. They're resourcing ourselves. And we're learning to access these resources, if you like, if you like that kind of language. To switch from the personal to the impersonal, to the universal. And that there are many of these lists, you know, the characteristics, the noble truths, to have these as a reference easily, the Eightfold Path, these eight practices as a reference. The hindrances and, the, and awakening factors, big time, they're wonderful, I love them. I use those tons, thoroughly enjoy them. Um, the four Satipatthanas, these just sound like so much concept when I say it like this, but some of you are very familiar with these. And they can be really just such great lenses to just really shift us. They're made their skills. They're not just theory. This isn't just dogma. This is ways of practicing which liberates. And so they're all skills, so many of them. The aggregates, the spiritual faculties, the Brahma Viharas, the Paramis, beautiful. And often in these retreats we've taught these things, you know, and you're familiar with them. They're all skillful ways of seeing which liberate. And so the one I'm going to now speak to for the next few minutes is what we're coming to in the timing of our retreat. Because, I'm sorry, I'm hiding around the micro, I'm supposed to be speaking into it. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've got a new microphone which goes over my ear, so I no longer have to think about it. But, um, yes, in uh, the shape of this retreat, we first relax. You know, we get to know the place, we get to feel at ease with each other, we slow ourselves down from our frantic lives, we get to um, be kind, let nature reassure us to, to soothe everything, to settle everything down. And then, and until then, we can't do anything else. No point trying to collect ourselves, because we just aren't collectible, you know, we're scattered still. And so as we get more settled and we get more familiar, and, uh, and the day goes on, then we can begin to really in, include, encourage a sense of relaxing and a sense of settling. It's not just relaxing all over the place, but really gathering in and coming home and centering. And this is a huge skill. And it's, it's, we can think, okay, I'm going to direct my attention and make it stay here. That's how it was for me for you know, quite a long time. Do this, you know, keep your attention right here. 
on these two rings here, and then this little frenulum here, and then this little bit of your upper lip, this tiny little, you know, like laser attention. That's very a doing kind of a thing. Well, that is one small part of it, but actually, it's not such a directing. It's much more of relaxing and doing nothing else. Letting go of all of the, I want to do this, I think I'll do this, and now I'm going to go and have a cup of tea. Just give up everything else and just settle and soften and rest in being just here. It's a relinquishing of believing it. The next moment or some other thing will be better. Just surrender to the simple staying here. That's a huge skill. It's a lot of giving up. When we think, oh, I'm, I can do this well, you know, I'm good at this. That's not the attitude that will work because that's too strivy and too judgy and then we'll get frustrated. That's this immediate setup and then it's like, ugh, and we're battling against something. And that doesn't work to, to stay. Staying is like, it's an invitation to rest here. Oh, because all the other is exhausting and relatively futile and doesn't do what we think it will do, even though we think this busy little mind that's fabricating everything, that we'll be happier if we have a cup of tea. Just give all that up and just do what we tell you. <laughs> be very simple. When you walk, just give up all the looking for the ducks and where are the bunnies and if you see the bunnies, enjoy the bunnies. If you don't see the bunnies, don't look for the bunnies. They're not there. Stay with your body, you know. Just stay with the immediate. Keep it very simple. It's a, it's, it's a, it requires surrendering this busy mind that's trying to get and do and fix and improve and all of that. It, we're giving that up. We're just coming home to something so simple. But we, we doubt it's valuable. We think it's got to be more than that. We, we make up these mountains out of molehills for ourselves. Whatever we choose to make our, um, whatever, that's even the wrong way of saying it, when, what we're noticing, say we're breathing, say we're walking, we're noticing the air, whatever it is we're noticing, slow that down, stay longer with that for some more moments so that your mind is able to be more stable and stay here. And then it'll do something else, notice something else, stay with that thing. We're going into slow motion. Instead of this jump, 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 the next, another, more, different, another, over here. What about yesterday's meditation? What happened to that? Where's that, you know? Okay, just here, just this. It's a surrender, it's a relaxing, um, It's a nourishing. The busyness and the looking for other and trying is exhausting and it isn't nourishing. When we can settle, it's extraordinary how nourishing it is. To be calm is, we discover when we can calm ourselves, as we become more serene, isn't that a lovely word, serene? Wouldn't you like to drink a whole draft of serene? <laughs> Does that sound great? Well, it is great. Calm, I don't know, I mean, I like to play with words, as you know. But there's something so utterly uh, 
nourishing. It just feeds our system to be able to rest. We discover that all the things we're looking for, chocolate and the new this and the next that and fix this and get rid of this, is we're actually looking to have an experience that's serene. When we've got this all sorted out, we've got the things we want and we've got rid of the other thing, then we'll be happy. It's not that we'll be ecstatic, it's that we'll be able to relax finally and then it'll be okay. We're looking for the peace that we're, that's available already if we just stop looking. It sounds so ridiculous. But the nourishment that happens inside the system when we can become calm and collected, tranquil, is profound. It's what we've all been wanting. And it gives us, it gives us things like confidence. It gives us things like steadiness. So then, whatever may come by, whatever can wash through us, we can be with it. It can just wash through, even when memories wash through, or an agitation comes, or a blast of a loud sound. It's like, oh, okay. Equanimity comes because there's this calm. It's a great capacity to handle all of the ups and downs, all of the changes, the changes of the weather, the changes of people, what goes on. And it isn't that that's a skill, if you like, but it means we do that with ease, we do that with delight. We enjoy being human. We grow a sense of grace. We can flow, and it feels great to flow. Instead of be thrown off and agitated and triggered, we don't get so triggered. It all of these things come from this ability to become so settled, so quietened down stilling, softening, not by pushing, not by constraining, not by, you know, straight-jacketing ourselves at all, but by just giving up anything else and just relaxing into this, stay here, enough already. And I know I'm just telling you some of these things, which some of you haven't experienced, and, you know, wanting you to feel what I feel, but I just want to inspire you with the value of Samadhi practice, settled practice. And it isn't just that it feels delicious. We can focus on this, the sense of peace that's such well-being. We're in mostly such a state of chronic tension and buzz and not quite okayness that once we start, the hindrances are temporary allayed, temporarily allayed. We aren't wanting anything else. We aren't trying to get rid of anything else. There is no agitation. There is no dullness and there's no doubt. We're confident, we're peaceful. This is all there is. And this is this very soft, sublime, sort of uplifted feeling. And we realize things. We realize from that, it's like, this is what I've always wanted. I thought it was in chocolate and new this is and you know, new designs. And I have my kitchen all redesigned, then I feel this way, but it's already here like this. And the pleasure of that, it, even pleasure isn't the right word because it's more subtle than pleasure. It isn't just like groovy. It's, there's a profound, I, we don't have very good English words for inner states. The English language isn't good at it. But the deliciousness of well-being just had coming into my, surpasses all understanding. I don't know where these words come from. But... I want us not to underestimate the value. 
and the only, we only have rare opportunities in our day-to-day lives, not living as monastics, where we can access even a shadow of this. Shadow is the wrong word. Glimmer, glimpse. And this is one of the times you've got an eight-day, nine-day retreat. There's great f- support here. There's great facilities. This is really quiet space, very spacious. The food is lovely. The teachers are totally here for you. (laughs) We're in a group of people who are all dedicated, keen, you know. Wow. We have time, we have the ability, we've come out of our, away from our busy lives, they're being handled by the people who are taking care of it for us, whatever. Now is the time. If you can't appreciate the quietude of this and really luxuriate in it, you'll never, when else, when else will you? There aren't that many times in a life we get this opportunity. And then this, this collectedness that can come, this, it's like, it's like a, a field that can envelop us and then we can relax in it and it will hold us. It's very passive, it's very soft. It's not a focusing on, it's a relaxing with. Subtle difference. One of the keys to accessing this, to enabling this, to growing this, is keep on being here. It's this continuously being with whatever we're with. Instead of with for a while and then off we go to do something else and then back again and back and forth, that's jerky. It's this keep going, keep being here, move slowly. Stay here in your body as it gets up, as it puts on its clothes. Really go slow for these next couple of days. Um, Joseph does this. Joseph Goldstein, he's, he does this with his hands and he says, seamless, when you're working with him and he's checking, you know, how, how is your present awareness? How is your concentration really? How is your mindfulness? Seamless? Or has it got all these gaps? If there's gaps in your being here, you'll fall down those gaps and you'll get lost again. And it's not wrong, and you haven't failed in any way. It's just that what makes it grow is the keeping it going. And then it just gains, the word is momentum. And it does it for itself, it gains a momentum. You've heard me say this however many times I've been here. I say it every time. But it really is, uh, it's such, such a rare preciousness one of the big gifts of meditation, and one of the skills that's absolutely essential, so. I'm now full of envy for you being able to sit here and you don't have to do Dharma talks and interview people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you.
calm, collected attention. I don't know how you're actually doing in there, but you look like you're really attentive, so thank you. Hope it's helpful. Even just a few of these words, hope they're helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.